0: what up welcome to slide the avalanche podcast episode eight if i may interject it's actually episode seven uh yeah back to our show where has the time gone coming to you on friday december 30th from my casita adjacent to the overflow parking lot at Tsugaike kogen ski area in otari village the shabby little powder skiing capital of the Orient, I feel right at home. I've been sipping Nihonshu and chowing fried octopus balls all afternoon because we had a staff meeting and training session this morning, and that's what we do after meetings and trainings. It's a pretty legit routine. You can insert an octopus balls joke here if you like. We're getting about 2,000 listens per week on Slide. It ain't no radio lab, but... I'm getting lots of feedback from y'all on how it's making you think. And that is the goal. So that's pretty cool. This week on Slide, in the state of the pack, we dive a little deeper into the deep, persistent slab problems that much of the Rocky Mountains are coping with. I shall micro-rant, because it is my way. We'll wrap up your situational awareness primer with Part 3, Projection, and I'll try and tie story time into that with a simple yet common example of situational awareness failure. If you're grooving on it, I encourage you to subscribe to Slide, the Avalanche Podcast, via iPhone or any Android podcasting app. I watched FUBAR the other night, and I'm sorry to say I didn't make it through the whole thing, but I think I got the message. In the spirit of Canadian rednecks everywhere, let's give her a state of the pack pretty straightforward pack issues across the globe the bulk of western civilization is dealing with a persistent slab problem or soon will be north america mostly received copious amounts of snow over the last week europe had been high and dry but precip is inbound or already falling on a variety of weak layers Japan has been alternating between rain and snow, but don't worry about us. We'll be just fine. Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Washington, California, and Alaska all report persistent or deep persistent slab problems of some degree. It seems to be healing in Utah and Washington while they are on the edge in Wyoming and Montana and getting closer to that edge in Colorado. Things are better in most of Canada, They also have a diverse, highly qualified cabinet, universal health care, carbon taxes, and a prime minister with nice hair. But south of the border, we have the guns, the power, and the freedom, and the will to use them. So that's nice, I think. I asked some gurus for their take on managing deep, persistent slab problems. First up is Don Sheriff, Teton legend, co-owner of the American Avalanche Institute and longtime snow safety director for Valdez Heli Ski Guides.
1: Deep Slab Cogitations by Don Sheriff Wow, what a December it's been in the Tetons. To date, we've seen 120 inches of snow with well over 11 inches of water equivalent falling on the east side of the Teton Crest at 9,100 feet. That load was more than a match for the facets surrounding the late October rain crusts, and a widespread natural cycle ran from December 11th through the 17th. These avalanches were 4 to 6 feet deep and ranged from D2.5 to D4 in size. Since then, there have been limited reports of avalanches running on the October crusts, with the last one chronicled around 11,000 feet on a southeast aspect on December 20th bed surface and weak layer continuity is high on east through northwest aspects above 9,000 feet and appears to extend to southeast aspects above 10 and a half to around 11,000 feet. It seems rare these days that the Tetons don't start a season without some flaws in the foundation. The recent and sustained loading of this year brought the onset of large avalanches more quickly than in most years, and as people hearkening back to December 2008 when the pond ice layer got loaded by a series of large storms and the world started to fall apart. So are we past a tipping point for this year's basal weak layers? A wise man once told me not to think so much in terms of confidence, but in terms of evidence and uncertainty. The lack of recent evidence for deep slab activity is only matched by the lack of visibility of late. They could be happening, but very few have been venturing into the high country in the last few days. Evidence is sparse, so my uncertainty is pretty high. We haven't had a heavyweight punch as we did mid month, and slab depths are getting to the point that it will be harder to impact the October snow. Still, the consequences of being wrong outweigh the rewards of being right. Are we out of the deep slab woods yet? I can't really tell. It's still hard to see from tree to tree.
0: Evidence is sparse. Uncertainty is high. For the moment, the consequences still outweigh the rewards. Sounds like a holding pattern. Doug Chabot is the director of the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Information Center in Bozeman, Montana. A legend in his own right, I encourage you to check out their website. Doug and his crew do an outstanding job of supplementing their forecast narrative with video that clearly demonstrates the problems they discuss. Their YouTube channel is called Avalanche Guys, and they have 517 videos dating all the way back to 2008, when new parents still terrified their children with tales of the ancient VHS versus Betamax wars. You can subscribe to that. Here's Doug's take on their problem.
2: Here in Southwest Montana, we definitely have uh, some persistent problems, which is not unusual. Um, typically we're burying surface horror or some near surface facets that we track, which can last for weeks. Uh, this year is a little bit different because our problem layer is depth war at the ground. So like a lot of the West, we had some early season snow, um, sat there for a while. And then we got really cold temps. Uh, the beginning of December, we were seeing, about four or five days of minus 15 to minus 20 in the mountains. Um, and the snowpack was less than two feet thick. So it turned all those, uh, turned the snow into facets and depth whore, which is now getting loaded. Uh, the, the thickness of that layer definitely varies. Um, so as you're getting out, we're advising people to kind of dig and see for themselves how, how deep it is or, or how thick it is. But what's interesting is that we're pretty much finding it everywhere we dig. So we're seeing it on all aspects, all our mountain ranges. Um, it seems like this is a problem, a common problem to the West right now. Um, so what I recommend is that you just assume it's there. If you're going to go out skiing or sledding, like assume it's there because – chances are you're going to be right, Um, and if you're going to commit to some avalanche terrain, even though it's unlikely you're going to trigger something, um, I'm certainly digging and making sure that it's not there on the unusual slope um, before I'm going for it. So, it's definitely tricky, but there's other than avoidance, um, you're going to have to do a lot of homework um, before you commit to a slope. So, yeah, for the most part, personally, I'm avoiding avalanche terrain uh, unless I'm pretty certain that that layer does not exist so it's good luck heads up and uh, I think it's going to be sticking with us for I don't know could be a while Doug
0: seems to have a similar take as Don if you're going to hit some avalanche terrain you better have some damn good evidence to justify your decision Ethan Green and Brian Lazar from the Colorado Avalanche Information Center recently published a blog post on deep persistent slab problems. Yes, blogs are still a thing. They emphasize the high consequence, low probability nature of deep persistent slab issues and say that, quote, because deep persistent slab avalanches are so dangerous, the only safe way to manage your risk is by avoiding those suspect slopes. On a bad year, you might have to avoid those slopes for the rest of the season. You probably don't need my help to imagine unsafe ways to manage that risk. You're going to see plenty of people that don't avoid those suspect slopes, and most of them will get away with it. So what's the happy middle ground? If you were paying attention to the leaders I just cited, you should know the answer. There is no happy middle ground. Unless it's Nordic skiing. I like Nordic skiing. If you're dealing with a widespread, deep, persistent slab problem, you can avoid avalanche terrain, work like hell to find a place the problem doesn't exist, or you can give her and pray you don't get wasted if your number comes up. That last option is Basically swimming in denial and hoping you don't see any crocs. Could millions of Egyptians be wrong? Well, there's pretty strong evidence they believe in an afterlife. But a pyramid isn't really in my skiing budget. It's probably worth noting that Slide does not yet have any listeners in Egypt. A friend of mine said something the other day that I found both poignant and universal. He was in the middle of an awesome powder day, and yet, he opines, even though yesterday could have rated awesome, for some reason I felt off. There was so much snow and so many people. I watched plenty of my friends make dubious decisions and heard their dubious attempts at rationalizing those decisions as the inbounds POW got quickly chopped up and the backcountry POW, deemed no-go, merely one lap before, started looking good. He went home. Respect. As I've said before, We humans are very good at telling stories that justify getting what we want. You'll have to look hard through the animal kingdom to find other creatures with the same capacity for self-destruction. A fellow named Adam grew up skiing around White Pass, Washington. Well known and well liked for his passion and enthusiasm, he was intimately familiar with the Backcountry country terrain there. No doubt, December 27th was an amazing day of skiing deep powder. Adam took a last run with a friend. They each took a different line. Adam triggered an avalanche and was later located under five to six feet of debris. Adam did not Survive. Here's a micro rant for you. I think it's great that you took the time to educate yourself on avalanches and practice diligently with your beacon. If you haven't bothered to get any medical training, get out. I'm serious. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Keep walking, sunshine. You think the magical rescue fairies will descend from the heavens after you dig your buddy up? and whisk you off to the Level 1 Trauma Center in Warm and Fuzzyville? Well, if you're in Europe, maybe they will, but don't interrupt me, I'm on a roll. I got my EMT cert right around the time I started backcountry skiing. A wilderness first responder course is an even easier, cheaper, and better option for backcountry enthusiasts. Take one and carry appropriate first aid gear every day. I never used to carry the gear. Then one day, deep in the Argentina backcountry, my partner got caught in an avalanche and broke his arm. We had tape. That's it. We splinted his arm with a pole and the tape, but did such a bad job that he later had to have both arms amputated. And now he has to buckle his boots with his mouth. Nothing says pathetic, like a poor sap of a middle-aged smartass with no arms, whose lips are stuck to his metal boot buckles.
1: Hit me, Hit me,
0: stop That last part is not true, but the first part is, I've carried a med kit with me every day since then. We need to prepare for traumatic injuries the same way we prepare for avalanche accidents. Get the training, get the gear, and bring it. Here's the meaty bit for this week. For the last few episodes, we've been lurching and clamoring towards total consciousness via an examination of the situational awareness concept. How can we improve our own situational awareness and thusly marshal our mental powers under the banner of better decision making? Episode 5 looked at the observational phase of situational awareness. Six tackled the integration phase, and this one, seven, looks at phase three, projection. During phase one, observation, we gather information. During phase two, integration, we sort that information, compare it with what we already believe, reassess, and generally do most of the heavy mental lifting of making sense of the world around us. The good news is that most situational awareness faults occur during the observational phase. You don't have to do brain squats to radically improve your situational awareness. You just have to train yourself to be a better observer. I asserted that having an observations plan that seeks to gather evidence and reduce uncertainty Will help make you one with your multiverse. I also asserted that having a plan to reassess your beliefs will help make you even more totally conscious. Gunga galunga. Are you seeing a pattern here? Planning gives your situational awareness structure, and your practice forms the foundation of instinct. If you plan and practice, you'll be slapping skin with the Dalai Lama in no time. Phase three, projection, is where you let your imagination run wild. Kind of wild, anyhow. More Tina Fey than Sarah Palin. This is the what-if game. Your brain starts to spin out different scenarios for how the scene may go down. You compare the different scenarios and that forms the foundation of your decision and action. Your brain will spin stories on its own until the cows come home. You must be the editor. If that doesn't sound familiar, go back to episode four and review the narrative fallacy segment. You have to practice skepticism Shooting your stories down. What's your failure story? Brain. No. That is a stupid idea. Talk to your partners. And poke holes in each other's stories. Mind those brain traps. On the other end, it helps if you can steer the boat outside of the box. I'm kind of a metaphor mixer. Why is there not a cocktail called the metaphor mixer? (laughs) Anyway, what I mean is, don't limit yourself to the obvious. Look for creative solutions and unexpected problems. The low-frequency, high-consequence event is one of the most difficult problems to manage. By definition, it lies on the edges of our experience. Taking a broader approach to problems and solutions will set you up for mitigating consequences. Use the uncertainty in the projection phase to guide your observation's plan for the next iteration of your situational awareness cycle. I got no idea which one of these stories may come to pass. So, what do you want to know that will help you figure that out? How can you find that information? The projection phase is burdened by the threat of propagating errors from phase one and two, observation and integration. If you screw those up, you're going to be a lousy storyteller. Projection relies on the foundation of observation and integration. Is the supposed pattern that supports your story valid or wishful thinking? Remember what I said about a bowl full of tracks being a bowl full of tracks, not a stability pattern. If you lack sufficient experience, your story simply won't have legs. If you fail to translate your experience into expertise, same, same. That's just the way it goes. Almost certainly, you will be unable to eliminate uncertainty. So consider building a margin into your plan. Give yourself a buffer. Everybody loves a nice little buffer. Situational awareness. Observation, integration, and projection. That's all you got it now. Piece of pie, ne? Easy peasy. Now. No, not without practice. Situational awareness is a cycle that must never falter when you are in avalanche country. Things like distraction, complacency, stress, time pressure, and task overload are always lurking, and they compromise your situational awareness. So here's some takeaways for you. Plan on making observations that seek to reduce uncertainty. Learn to pause and question your situational awareness and your beliefs. Be the ball, Danny. Routine planning and reassessment will eventually make you an intuitively keen observer. Reassessment is the critical tool. For capturing change. Don't be the hero of your own story. Be the villain. What are you going to do wrong? What are you going to do that is unacceptable? Just because you think it's so. Don't make it be like that. And fight those brain traps. A lot of takeaways. Didn't say it was going to be easy. This is just a primer. We're just getting warmed up. But that's a good start. All right, the brain traps is back. This week we got the Dunning Kruger effect. What? You can call it the DK. Oh, don't call it that. You can call it the Druger, the crunning, whatever. The Dunning Kruger effect refers to research published by David Dunning and Justin Kruger in 1999. Dunning and Kruger describe a dual burden for those who lack competence. In a particular skill or knowledge domain. Part one of the burden results in suboptimal performance due to a lack of proficiency. You just don't know what you're doing. Part two describes an inability to recognize this lack of proficiency. Part two is popularly referred to as the too-stupid-to-know-how-stupid-you-are phenomenon. You see, frequently, the knowledge required to assess competence is the same knowledge that is required to achieve competence. Dunning and Kruger used the example of grammar. If you have poor grammar, you can't really recognize that it's poor without an understanding of what correct grammar is. If you have poor route selection or hazard assessment skills, how will you know? Knowing how good you are requires the same skills as being good. Regarding brain traps, you can't combat the bias in your decision-making without knowledge of and attention to those biases. That's why I drone on on the subject. Dunning and Kruger favor the terms competent and incompetent, which carry some pejorative baggage. Nobody likes pejorative baggage. And as I mentioned, popular culture has seized on the Dunning-Kruger effect as a scientific justification for mockery and disdain. This is unfortunate because the Dunning-Kruger effect has salient implications for the development of expertise, particularly for we avalanchistas. What they are saying is that the less expert lack the metacognitive ability to assess their own performance. A skier or sledder can only assess their judgment to the level of their existing expertise. We are hamstrung when it comes to recognizing our own poor judgment in avalanche terrain. For our Mexican, Finn, and Kyrgyz listeners, hamstringing is a method of crippling a person or animal by severing their hamstring tendons, a gruesome analogy indeed that is commonly used to describe some sort of physical or mental impediment. So, while not physically crippling, lack of expertise in the avalanche domain is itself an impediment to assessing one's own expertise. Ignorance is ignorance. So if I stink at making decisions in avalanche country... I'm not even qualified to assess my own stank. Yep. Fortunately, you have me for that. Glad to help. But let me tell you first, it gets worse. Way back in 1871, the original Chuck D. wrote, Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Dung and Kruger say it longer and less pretty. Because people usually choose what they think is the most reasonable and optimal option, the failure to recognize that one has performed poorly will instead leave one to assume that one has performed well. As a result, the incompetent will tend to grossly overestimate their skills and abilities. We can even spin that way farther back to the 4th century before common era when Lao Tzu says those who think they know never learn. Dude had some legit insight. Those who think they know never learn. I will use that history degree every chance I get. So what we're getting at is that experience leads to confidence. which Exacerbates the dual burdens of a lack of expertise. G- g- good God, right? I-, I mean, I I hope that's what you're thinking. I spent the last five minutes coming to terms with the fact that I may be a hopeless arrogant twit. <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll be fine. Don't worry. It, it can't be all that bad, right? Well, let's see if we can find the pony in this it turds. Part of the problem is that as avalanche folk, we seldom receive negative feedback or any feedback for that matter. How often have you been called out or chewed out for making a bad decision in avalanche terrain? If the decision resulted in an accident, well, that's feedback in and of itself. But most bad decisions in avalanche terrain result in nothing. Lots of them result in fantastic skiing. And that is a big friggin' problem. Even if you are good at debriefing yourself, you are not qualified to do that and you are predisposed to go easy on good old number one. Even if we recognize poor decisions that we make, we're probably going to blame it on something other than being a poor decision maker. We were in a hurry. I got distracted. She normally doesn't do that. If our debrief process includes justification and lacks a neutral third party, there's a good chance our processes bunk. So here's the pony there's no shortage of external sources of expertise and feedback. Even if you spend your days touring the Tombstone Range up in the Yukon, you can head home to your special yurt at night and fire up your micro hydro interweb connection and find all sorts of resources to tell you how much you stink. Whether it be know it all podcasters like me, professional oracles of safety, or internet forums full of misanthropic hyenas just dying to gnaw the flesh from the bones of your decision making. That's a little rough, though. I would actually suggest that you solicit third party feedback, specifically constructive criticism from a boss or a mentor, or a respected friend or acquaintance. It's hard to know who the expert is, but you got to try. And the criticism part is critical. You can self-debrief with your partner if that's the best you can do, but you're going to have to hurt each other, and that can be awkward. A good debrief should be mildly painful and awkward. Like the, well, use your imagination, this is a family podcast. One of the reasons I place so much emphasis on communication is so that we can have the hard conversations with each other about lapse and error. Those conversations require humility. And humility is one of the pillars of learning. See? It's getting better. What we all need is external input and a mindset that values that input. Those are twin challenges, but I think they are within reach. Make it happen. That's the path forward. That's the pony. Giddy-yep. All right. Special story time coming at you. I took a look at the list of whoops stories I got in the bank. I do actually have a list. Loss of situational awareness is a factor in almost every one of them. And it mostly occurs in the observational phase. Like I said, they all have brain traps too. They all have multiple contributing factors. I don't think any of them have an I did everything right and still a screwed up theme. Those events are rare. So that makes it tough to settle on an example, but I picked one because, as Freddie said, the show must go on. Let's uh, let's zoom back to Hakuba last year when I went for a tour with my buddy Rolf and some other fellas. Rolf, if you're listening, don't take the tale as disrespectful. Love you, man, but the people must be edutained. I choose this as an example because it represents an individual with a high level of expertise, me, falling into a classic brain trap. This guy with two thumbs who is lecturing on brain traps still gets suckered by him. And it wasn't even much of a trap, more like bashing my face into a glass door that I should have seen. I really beat myself up over this one. Anyway, Rolf is a German guide. That should conjure an image in your head, and it's probably accurate. He is intimately familiar with the area we were touring in, and I was relatively new to it. We were a large group four, I think. That's large for me. More than two is large as far as I'm concerned. He and I were far and away the most experienced members of the group. It was a gorgeous bluebird, hakaba, deep powder day. We get a lot of those. and Normally, that means I will be slaying pow like nobody's business. But when the crew showed up at my casita, I'm a little miffed. I hate big groups for lots of reasons. The main two are that more skiers make more tracks, and I abhor tracks, and big groups tend to confound decision-making. Mostly I was irritated by the thought that I would have to contend with other tracks. But it's a good crew. Happy fellas that are stoked to be here, having fun. An easy crew, there's no ego to get in the way, except... Maybe for mine. So we shuffle up the lift system and leave the ski area boundary heading for face shots in the hoisawa oh, drainage. There's a bunch of new snow, no wind, mild temps. The skiing promises to be just peachy. I'm content to take a back seat and Rolf veers naturally into a leadership role. He is guiding our terrain choices and skiing first and generally running the show. Not in an aggressive or unpleasant manner. It's just just his way. Unfortunately, the terrain he is choosing is a little constricted. The first line follows a rib with heavy brush on one side and a fair bit of exposure on the other. Not a lot of room. The second line follows another rib with brush on one side and a hot aspect change and rock band on the other. Not a lot of room. Not wanting to be pushy, I'm skiing at or near the back of the pack, which means, you guessed it, I'm hitting a lot of tracks, so I'm getting irritated. I'm chill, but not super stoked. I could be having a better day. As we start climbing out of the shallow basin for another lap, I find myself at the front of the line, and now I'm in my happy place. Some route finding, some trail breaking. I love this stuff. I've got an easy line picked out through some light trees that will pop us back onto the ridge in short order. Sadly, it doesn't take long for a voice to chime in from behind me. He's not happy with my route. Wants to go more to the left. (sighs) Okay, whatever. I swallow my frustration and start veering in the indicated direction. couple minutes go by. Nope. Still not good enough. More left. We're talking the difference of a few hundred feet. Fortunately, I cannot use my mental powers to inflict actual physical harm on another human, because I would have. No fire and brimstone, But a nice weeping blister or some kind of irritating neck spasm would have been sweet. So with a lack of mental firepower at my disposal, I break farther left and put my head down and focus on blazing up. I'm redirecting my frustration into physical effort. We get to the final head wall and it's steeper than I thought it would be. Maybe 36 or 37 degrees. Rolf comments on that. I grunt acknowledgement. I keep picking my way up, and the snow seems to be a lot deeper than I thought it would be. Rolf comments on that, too. I agree with him. But I'm past listening to him. I've stopped. In a moment, switched from dozer mode to full-blown hazard assessment. Are we safe on this slope? All of a sudden, I'm not sure. I start poking and prodding at the snow and scrutinizing the remaining route to the ridge. It's a small terrain feature, maybe as small as 50 meters of vertical relief, probably less. There's well over a meter of base, maybe even two. It's big enough. I can't feel any weaknesses in the pack. And I know there shouldn't be. But the realization that I would never willfully choose this route will not leave me alone. Not because I think something will go wrong, but because it's a it's a stupid route. Nothing goes wrong. We continue and top out on the ridge. I think... Ralph and I are a bit relieved. I don't think the others even noticed anything was amiss. Maybe it wasn't, but my day is skunked. I can't let it go. I let a stupid little thing like getting irritated interfere with my route finding, my situational awareness. Granted, I was pulled off course and the original intended route was much safer, but I didn't go where I wanted to go. And I didn't wind up where he wanted me to go. And I didn't tell him to pipe down. And I didn't ask him to explain himself. Instead, I opted for the asinine middle ground. Lose, lose. Head down. Channeling my frustration into breaking trail. Strong like bull. Smart. Smart. Like tractor. It doesn't take much to threaten your situational awareness, especially when the hazards aren't jumping up and shouting at you. Sometimes just being a little irritated is more than enough. Well, fat lady singing, and that's all she wrote for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you're getting some. Hope you're doing it smart. This week's emotional support was provided by the Avalanche Review, the American Avalanche Institute, and the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Information Center. Good fake. Music, as always, was provided by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. Next week, we're going to dig into teamwork. I'll look for another brain trap for you. Maybe an update from the land of the rising sun, but really I'll just be winging it as usual. To all those who are taking the time to listen to the show and think about what they're doing and provide me with feedback, thank you. Pray for snow.